0: I'm Alina Utrada, and this is The Anti Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of The Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to The Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. So hi, everyone. We're here today with Nana Satin, a PhD candidate in politics, international studies here at Cambridge University, who studies technology, time and temporality. So hi, Nana. Thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having
0: me. Um, So maybe we could start with just, you know, about you. So maybe you could tell us a bit about your background, how you got into studying technology and time, which is such a fascinating like take on the the technology studies um and what led you to cambridge
1: yeah um i started my studies doing comparative politics actually and um i had a course on the political theory of hannah arendt which i kind of stumbled upon um and it completely changed the course of my studies afterwards i think Um, but my interest in technology originated in dublin when i worked at the norwegian embassy after my undergrad uh, and we had a lot of meetings with the big tech companies like Google and Facebook in Dublin. And I just got interested in this notion of regulation and how to to accommodate um, the meeting point between technology and politics. And uh, then I moved to Copenhagen to do my master's there and had some courses on science and technology studies. I came to Cambridge afterwards then to work on political theory, um, particularly notions of temporality in relation to technology uh, in the 21st century so not technology throughout human history as such
0: yeah so like maybe you could talk a bit about because that's so fascinating to think about technology and time so what does what does that really mean to you what kinds of technology are you looking about and how does as you say like how does modernity fit into 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 what you're what you're looking at and researching
1: I think that technology and time are very intimately linked, actually, and I came to realize this uh, quite late, in a sense, in the research, how how interlinked they actually are. I think that, to a very large extent, technology is what makes or uh, mediates our sense of time, in the sense that we need Mm -hmm. technologies to measure time, and some of the earliest technologies we know about are uh, connected to time measurements, such as solar clocks and water clocks and um, other kinds of watches um, that help us order and sequence and measure um, time and calendars as well, which have been very important nation-building tools throughout human history. Um, so I think technology, if you have a broad notion of technology as not just AI and then kind of newest of the new, but also see technology in this kind of broader perspective as social technologies and ways of creating administrative apparatuses I think that time and technology are very intimately linked and should be um, seen together in a sense and then I think in the modern experience of modernity um, time has changed I think that's uh, reasonable to say there is quite a lot of literature that says that um, there is a notion of acceleration in modernity or a notion that you are Uh, speeding up time, that space is becoming smaller and time is going faster. And um, that is very much a modern experience and it's also related to this kind of linear notion of time where we are moving forwards, where we are progressing. Of course also linked to the capitalist economy and the notion of progress. And just as a last thing, I think that in terms of the newest kinds of technologies It is evident that time is very much both individual, but also social. Mm. So the fact that we do uh, experience frustration when our internet connection is slow (laughs) is a modern phenomenon that would be incomprehensible outside our social situation. And I think that reflecting upon how time is... um, changing or how time and technologies of time and this broader notion of technology outside the watches and the ordering of time, but also um, the temporal qualities of the internet or of our smartphones are influencing us is very much uh, pertinent. And that's what I hope to do with my research.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. So do you think then, I mean, you kind of touched on two, two, t- bits of it there but do you think that it's that as you kind of mentioned technology speeds up our experience of time so like you know I find time gets away from me when I'm on Twitter because it just it, it, it distracts me in a sense but then there's also this argument I think you know we were talking about this with another um, individual um, on, on Jennifer's podcast last week, she mentioned who says that technology is making time speed up in terms of like technological progress um, and the way that like, there is a certain argument that goes that like post-modernity, which is very obviously like embedded within like Western conceptions of the European enlightenment, that all of a sudden time and progress, as you mentioned, speed up and suddenly get this super fast technological progress where um, that is at odds with like the rate of um, historical, like technological development, in a sense. So, like for you, like what, what do you do? You think either of those arguments hold water? Like what, what for you, kind of do you think um, makes sense?
1: Um, so, to do the first thing, uh, if I understand you correctly, you asked me about the modernity. Speeding up of time and whether that's the kind of accurate description.
0: Yeah, if it's like our ex- is it our is it is that it technology ex- like changes our experience of time, or is it that technology speeds up? Like you know what I mean? So with the internet example, is it that like I now experience time as faster because you know before I would have been used to like being in the fields and I wouldn't be able to have my headphones in, or is it that all of these technological developments has progressed, has actually speeded up the normal rate of technological like development?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I think, first of all, it's important for me to say that I can't speak of time as a natural phenomenon. Uh, so time in physics is very different from the kind of temporalities or times that I'm interested in, which is more of this kind of social concept of time which we as humans experience and, and use to order our lives and our societies. And I think um, as a person, you have this experience of time going very slowly as a child, for example, many, or at least I can remember this experience of, of the extremely long hours of w- anticipation as a child. And now suddenly as a PhD student, it feels like there's not enough hours in the day. <laughs> and um, But I think that knowing that it's not a natural time that is being sped up or that is being changed by technology, but appreciating how time is to a large extent experienced or or formed by our experience. I do think that the developments of of modernity, such as globalization, increased communication um, infrastructure has changed our perception of time uh, quite radically because it has enabled um, news and information and commodities and everything to travel faster in physical space which is necessarily does kind of influence how um, impatient we are for um, news or for uh, things to happen or how what we expect in terms of Um, the delivery time of uh, a commodity from anywhere in the world but I also do think that as you say capitalism of course incentivizes ever smaller time frames because optimization and effectivization all these processes go in one direction and these are very much embedded in the very function of new technology. So it's not just a, a matter mm. of um, making technology that is uh, doing what it's supposed to do. It's about making technology that does it faster than any other technology. And that is um, driving this process of acceleration. And then I think with the question of postmodernity, I've thought quite a lot about this um, because postmodernity, of course, is this. Tendency that goes across cultural and um, um, normative and political um, fields. But then I think that in terms of our temporal sense, at least this is my impression from having read and from thinking about time in political theory, it does seem like time has not been to the same extent touched by this postmodern moment. Mm. So we do not have this experience of time having dispersed completely we do still relate to time in a vein that is similar to how we would relate to it in the 20th century. So it's not this kind of dispersion of time or this notion of no time or this kind of instantaneous time we are living in. We are living very much in a progressive modern time where we assume that the future is before us, the past is behind us and we are moving face forward into the future.
0: So are there, are there any technologies then that you think will radically change our perception of time?
1: Um, I mean, that is what I try to um, find out in my research, I guess. And, <laughs> I'll ask and you I, in I, three I'm, years. <laughs> yes, and I'm not completely sure if um, there is uh, currently a technology that does that for us that completely kind of challenges um, this notion of accelerating linear time. Um, but I do think that there are quite a few limit cases that might do that. And then I'm, um, yeah, I'm interested in the technologies that perhaps move at the border of our kind of abilities to experience time. So an example might be, which I've been thinking about high-speed trading, uh, which I do think have some of the qualities that also have been voiced um, as concerns about neural nets in general, this kind of notion of black box. You don't really know how uh, the output is produced based on the input because it's self-improving. And when it comes to high-speed trading, it's very evident that the process of trading is unintelligible to a human kind of temporal sense of time. Uh, We cannot really follow the logic or understand why the algorithms behave as they do at a certain time, and to some extent that leaves us to kind of trust that this algorithm will perform. Uh, and then you see the result at the end, or when the, quite ironically, in terms of temporal uh, issues, when when the stock market closes, which it still does, it follows this kind of very hmm. human-centered temporal trajectory, even when so much of trading is done by machines and uh, and that is interesting also because it seems like the interruption that is caused by this kind of human organizing of time actually is what to some extent decides who makes which money and when trading stops who sits with the cards again. Um, I mean another example is is blockchain which also seems to have some very interesting temporal qualities when compared to and um, other kinds of um, contracts, if you think of the blockchain as a ledger or as a contract, it does seem to at least attempt to be isolated from the decay of time. So as far as I understand it, the blockchain is supposed to keep the entire record of every transaction at every stage in its history. So the history is always contained in every part of the blockchain at every block. You can see the entire history by going back through the hashing functions. And what is interesting about that is that in a human perspective, um, notions of money or contracts are to some extent dependent on the fluidity and a sense of decay or um, ambiguity, which is lost in blockchain transactions. But then at the same time, um, the blockchain also is the transaction itself mm-hmm. um, as opposed to a contract, for example, which tells about the, a historical decision to um, make a deal or make a contract where you sign at the end and, you, and it kind of records a historical moment or it, it records a deal. Whereas the blockchain is the deal in a sense, it is mm-hmm. in the function of being um, written on the blockchain. The transaction is done, which is a kind of very instantaneous, almost incomprehensibly instantaneous uh, function. I think, and that um, that also seems to to be different to previous kinds of contracts and previous kinds of transactions, where there is a level of trust and there is a level of delay between uh, payment and. Rece- is receiving the payment or between uh, um, receiving the goods I guess yeah
0: it's interesting yeah because then money if you think of it in its literal sense is is like a future promise exactly. in a sense the storing a value in the moment for something in the future I saw uh, was it Christine Lagarde who is the former IMF head now head of the ECB so this morning uh, after a crypto crash she says Crypto is nothing, basically, I think, is mm. the comment. Um, it's interesting to see that now the like traditional financial banks getting involved in these.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think that is why these technologies are, to some extent, interesting as well, because they do challenge a lot of these concepts that we do take for granted, such as the trustworthiness of money or um, the contract, and the blockchain is, even though it's not popularly popularly dispersed, like most people will never get in contact with the blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> they will at least not trade in blockchain. Or, But the fact that it exists and that, that it holds this kind of promise does introduce some very interesting political questions to the scene of traditionally very institutionalized um, concepts such as money and and stated and contract enforcement as you yeah. also do research on
0: so i wonder you know so we were talking a little bit about like the financial financial technologies and how that that changes sort of social relations another thing like i know that you've researched about and we've talked a little bit about is like communication infrastructure um so we, we, you know it's interesting I don't know I spend too much time on Twitter I don't know if you spend any time on Twitter Nana you're better at being a PhD student <laughs> than me um but it's interesting you know and other people have written about this obviously about how these technologies change our our conception of time and distance in terms of how we experience events so like I remember gosh was it a year ago now when the January 6th attacks on Capitol Hill was happening I was watching it on Twitter in a sense, so it felt like being there in that people were uploading footage or, or um, pictures or, or commenting and reacting almost in real time, right? So you did feel like you were refreshing the feed, that you were, you were part of something, that you were experiencing it in that moment in time, which is still a bit different than even, let's say, like the first quote-unquote televised war. You think about like the Vietnam War in the U.S. at least, where every night you would be getting footage of what had happened and it, and it was very visual, but it wasn't there. It was still in the past in the sense it didn't feel, you know, a very immediate past, but it was still in some sense archival. Um, So I wonder then does, how, how do you think about um, these like communications infrastructure in terms of like the social experience of time and events? Does that, does that change how, how we are experiencing events and our political communities, and and how do you think of time
1: relating in that? Yeah, um, no, I have thought uh, a bit about this, and um, there are definitely some aspects to it that are novel. Um, I I think that at least, or I believe that from my research, that um, the scope and the instantaneousness of information today is um, new. And as you say, showing violent imagery um, from the past or from the immediate past is not new. So from the terrible lynching of Emmett Till through the Vietnam War, we have been experiencing these um, violent imagery. But the fact that this spreads to such a large audience um, or spectatorship, while it might still be happening, I think is unprecedented. So, in a sense, I think that we are um, having this experience of bearing witness to events in real time, which I think is um, different than previous uh, experiences of of news or of information and of events. And Digital technologies ensures that violence and war can be live streamed across the globe in real time. So to perhaps put it crudely, to bear witness in previous ages meant to be in immediate proximity to violence. So you Mm. would be a witness asked to give a statement afterwards because you'd been present at the moment. You'd been in the space of violence and you'd seen it with your own eyes. Whereas today we can all become witnesses... Uh, over platforms such as twitch or facebook and that i think is different to previous ages and there seems to be almost this kind of parting between time and space so time is no longer kind of confined to a specific space in the sense that the event travels mm-hmm. around the globe um, and we can vi- witness events live at any point no matter what our geographical situation or uh, placement mm-hmm. um, so I think also an interesting aspect to this which is um, to do with our social experience of um, of time is this notion of commemoration in modern modern societies oh, I think that it's become very very personalized and individualized in a way that we might not be conscious of, but which is still, in a sense, very strange. So the fact that you, for example, remember where you were during the Capitol Hill um, storming, Mm -hmm. that is a very common question, isn't it? Like, where were you during the September 11th attack? Or where were you during the storming of Capitol Hill? Some of these events become these like big markers of time where people will remember, I was here, I was in this geographical space, I was doing this while this was happening. You were in a space that was completely probably disconnected from the event itself, and you still knew it was going on. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a, a personal marker of time. I mean, I know where I was when the capitol hill was stormed i was submitting my application to cambridge <laughs> so it's such a <laughs> two momentous <laughs> two moments happening yeah. at the same time yeah but it's just such a strange conflation of the political and the personal or hmm. the eventful and the personal so we personalize events and we we kind of incorporate these moments of violence or these moments of um catastrophe or politics into our individual sense of time and we use them as markers in our own life and we situate ourselves in relation to these events in ways that are, I think that that must be different in comparison to to previous uh, periods where you would not know where you were during um, the battle for Waterloo or... Yeah.
0: I wonder then, do you think... So so this chain as you say it changes our perception of time because we remember where we were when something else was happening which is not where we were. So does this does this change the landscape in any way because I think you know again right if Vietnam War was the first um kind of like where we all watched news footage though the US I would say like everybody watched the nightly news at a certain time together then we switched to social media where everybody can watch kind of different things kind of more immediately, but everybody's watching different things and we're not, it's not like a you know, the five o'clock news in a a way is like a national temporal ritual that everyone's experienced at the same time. So do you think then that switch then say images that were coming out of like the Iraq and Afghanistan war in terms of how people had a social or collective reaction to violence that isn't happening where they are?
1: Yeah, I think this is very interesting because it's in a sense moving in two uh, opposite directions at the same time as you say in previous ages one might have had all these like institutionalized ritualized moments of the day where you knew you would listen to the radio or you would watch the news or and we had the same uh, kind of temporal sense imposed through those rituals so everybody followed the same kind of trajectory because we had these common rituals while today Of course, traditional media channels are struggling to keep that momentum and we are not consuming media in the same way and it's much more dispersed and varied. Uh, People get their information from a host of channels and it's very hard to to impose a kind of institutionalized time frame such as that again. I don't think that's, um, I mean, I don't know, but I don't think that's uh, viable. But at the same time, I do think that these moments where These events that do get a kind of status of um, being um, commemorized personally as a a moment where you reflect upon your whereabouts because you know that something momentous is happening somewhere else. Mm. I do think that they kind of streamline a little bit our experience of time, at least in the Western world. So that does, to some extent, move in the opposite direction by kind of making all, us all remember where we were at a certain time and kind of um collect all these experiences in one moment and then we disperse again so it's it's a very it's a very kind of messy image you both have this kind of um breaking up of traditional structures and at the same time we have this like coming together of um all our different lives in the moments where we commemorate where we were. And even if even if you don't care a lot about politics, you will still be asked the question, where were you when this happened? Uh, so people are at least forced to reflect upon their whereabouts and, and where, what they were doing at a certain time in a way that I think is more kind of institutionalizing than we tend to appreciate, perhaps. Um, But then, with uh, the kind of imagery that we get through digital channels, um, it is quite evident that this distinction between being informed and being entertained Mm. is completely dispersing. And that is quite uncomfortable for, for many people, at least I find it uncomfortable that we, um, we know that, for example, live streaming of terrible violence such as the Buffalo shootings a couple of weeks ago will be broadcast to an audience that is entertained or supportive of the violence while it might also be watched by people who witness it in a kind of um, citizen-like capacity where they want to, um, I don't know, bear witness or or report the violence that they're, that they're seeing. But this um, idea that something is live streamed and it might be consumed because it feels important because it's happening now and it's um, unfolding and we can stop it, but we are not in the geographical space to actually intervene, so it's kind of, one step removed from actual action and at the same time knowing that some people will consume it as a kind of commodity of entertainment and that those functions are not separate and not discernible but actually intimately connected I think is a very um, uncomfortable uh, realization about today's information environment I guess. Mm. And
0: do you think that changes how people react to the violence? Like, does it make you more... Does it, like, I mean, one thing is, right, like, when the war in Ukraine started, on the one hand, like, the fact that it's being broadcast immediately means that there is this, like, alternative visual imagery to be able to know what is going on, not just to, like, counter what propaganda... or or state in like state issued media might say or state sanctioned media might say but also to kind of give uh, a more immediate sense of what it might be like to be in that environment right so it's it's because it's amateur footage that you you might take of your of your everyday life not like this very sanitized production company like news company thing so there's that immediacy but then at the same time we have that and we are all witnessing it. It doesn't seem to have changed anything about the, the normal calculations of geopolitics, which would characterize any, any historic conflict in that it doesn't seem to matter the, the mass consumption of violence and the mass and public outrage and, and horror, whoever is whatever state agent is perpetuating this violence, the state agent just does it for whatever their reason so so do you think do you think like this mass consumption and and how you're thinking about time do do you think it changes that relationship with like the power dynamics in terms of how we then react to the violence
1: yeah i think um i first want to say that i um i'm not doing research on public opinion or behavior so whether it does lead to action is not really um something i can answer uh, as a political theorist but i think I, I think what would be interesting from my perspective is to kind of bring attention to some of these um sometimes conflicting um concepts that are introduced through uh these mediums of like home footage uh, in one sense I think that it does personalize the experience of consuming information so we are always the broadcaster and also in the space where we are consuming the medium so the sense of self and the sense of kind of being present is distorted in new uh, in these new kinds of medium consumption I think and that does bring some interesting questions in terms of what does it mean to kind of feel for a situation what does it do to our emotional responses and how does that emotional response uh, translate if it does translate into action and I think with the George Floyd footage um, you're quite right that it did translate into into action and I mean I, I wrote my master's thesis on on the political violence of uh, of George Floyd's uh, mm. footage, and I think that what that video, at least from my perspective, did was that it inserted itself as a a kind of almost like an action into the political space, um, and it became something that mobilized support in the same vein that the speech could do, or in the same way that the uh, program could do. Um, and that it resonated very deeply with, a long, as you say, a longer history of racialized violence in, in the US, which also made it a very particular moment for this video to come out, and which probably also contributed to the force of, of that footage. Um, so there, on the one hand, there is the, in a sense, the kind of individualizing personalizing of the experience of consuming this, and then at the same time, there seems to be quite a lot of power that could be mobilized through that. Um, Simultaneously, I do think that to return to this kind of border between consumption and entertainment and information, there is a lot of worry that we are becoming kind of sedated in the face of all this information. And I I don't know if that is correct. I mean, there is so much worry about whether porn is kind of numbing us to the force of violence or whether video games might make violent kids. I I don't know. I mean, I'm not a child, child psychologist. But I do think that the experience of being a person in this information and environment is chaotic and that might also translate into our sense of time so there's kind of like a stress to consuming news Uh, today there's a stress to at least i mean this is a very western perspective but there is a pervasiveness to sitting down on twitter or facebook or on any kind of state channel really and Um, all the kind of information coming at you, Mm. all the footage, all the live footage, orienting oneself in that is a chaotic experience, which I think do both influence our attention, making us kind of spend more time, perhaps, than we actually want on these channels, and then at the same time, creating a sense of urgency, of stress, that does make it feel like time passes quickly um without us being kind of able to to resist i mean james williams has this wonderful book on on attention and how our attention is being commodified by these big platforms and and i think that also does tap into temporal issues with um this kind of seamless um incorporation of news and social media mm. <laughs> you're both being entertained and being informed all the time
0: yeah it's interesting i was thinking about that because obviously the um like the texas shooting happened and it's a very jarring experience to be on social media in part because the reactions to the violence are not curated in the same way that they for like our emotional processing of such a traumatic event in the same way that they would be on a news program where, you know, you would have a uh, Coverage of it, it it would be it, you know it'd be this collective thing that's happened, but they would also be thinking about the audience emotional impact to process through that. And then when you you end that piece, you know you go into something else that doesn't seem so at odds with it. You know you wouldn't have like your comedy sketch right right yeah. afterwards, and that helps the audience sort of like process that emotional bit. Whereas you know when you're scrolling through Twitter, every other tweet is about horrific violence, but then maybe a tweet after that is. A joke about something and a tweet after that is freaking out about you know something else in the news about ricky gervais's trans stand up or something that's happening here or there and so your your emotions are constantly they're not being you're you're, you don't have this consistent emotional reaction to all of these different things coming at you at the same the same time
1: no, definitely. And I, I think that really captures the experience. Um, I mean, with the with the terrible attacks yesterday as well, where you, as a consumer, you go into your social media channels and your experience is tailored for you. I mean, we know this from, from all the documentaries yeah. and all the research <laughs> that we have a very individualized and to some extent optimized experience where we're supposed to be emo- uh, emotionally in Involved by the, the content that we consume that is the point of social media to some extent so the fact that it's not common that even in such a traumatic time as this or ironically a time like this <laughs> um, um, that we cannot be sure that we have the exact same kind of content shown to us and that we cannot kind of share the experience and and process it together in the way that we would if it was a curated news program, as you say, does also individualize and it does create a kind of lonely experience of these violent acts, which I think is um, just perhaps also a modern modern experience or a, Mm. a kind of digital experience that is different and the difference between what is a joke and what is reality, what is real and what is not real, does tap into quite a lot of literature as well. With uh, I, I think particularly about Baudrillard and these issues. So this notion that what we could be experiencing uh, is a simulation or how simulations function mm. does also resonate quite a lot with research being done on uh, officers struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder after having been to drone warfare. Even though you are um, not present geographically, the temporal presence that they have, uh, and perhaps the knowing of, uh, or the, the knowledge that you are committing Um, violence is enough to stir that emotional response Mm -hmm. so I think we should be very aware of that in in consuming and I don't know how we as consumers can be kind of aware of that but I don't think it's strange that stirs a lot of emotions and is quite chaotic for most people Mm -hmm. and what I think is again, from a philosophical perspective, interesting about digital media, as opposed to previous kinds of footage, is that we still, as consumers of information, relate to media and particularly to to movie or uh, moving images as reality. So we trust our senses when we see something um, that looks real being filmed. And I just read this article by Davide Panagia where he talks about how um, the traditional film medium is physical. So you know that um, the recording of a person on um, traditional film is evidence of an actual existing person going through these motions. Whereas digital movies are relations between data points which can be constructed algorithmically constructed mm-hmm. and which we we know this at a certain stage like we know that there is such a thing as deep fakes and that there are false imagery or forgery of imagery, but at the same time i don't i'm not sure if we can appreciate that fully in the moment of consuming um consuming this, um, this footage. And that just seems to introduce a whole possibility of, um, again, alternative realities and misinformation and, and the fact that we both can question footage on this basis and say, I don't believe this is real, or that we can be fooled by footage that we believe is real but uh but don't um but which is t- turns out to be constructed is is disconcerting and i do think that the role of fact checking in for example the ukraine war becomes even more important because all this imagery that is coming out knowing what of that is actually trustworthy and what is not and what is the source of uh, government propaganda Mm -hmm. or whatever um, is very important and also um, very hard because of course governments know this and they will they will appropriate the home Mm -hmm. video medium and the kind of stylistic bearing witness um, uh, form of the video or of the movie and use that for their purposes to spread alternative footage. Um, it does. I mean, problematic on other problematic on other accounts, but it does remind me a little bit of some of the issues that is brought up in Michelle Olleback's latest book, uh, Anni- Annihilate, uh, which uh, where he talks about simulated uh, footage which then Mm. becomes real afterwards yeah
0: yeah it's interesting because i mean one of the other problems like with to go back to like the time sense with this is that there's misinformation which the like um approach of the big tech giants who control these communication platforms um is quote-unquote content moderation which is like inherently a retrospective act so like no platform, no major platform at current time reviews posts before you post them, right? So a lot of the misinformation is about stopping amplification or about stopping spread or taking things down retrospectively. Mm-hmm. Whereas these, like, live stream events, as you've you've talked about, um, are, you know, they've struggled with it. And this is what coming up with, like, Facebook, you know, after the Christchurch shootings and it was still an issue with, um, with Buffalo a few weeks ago was that they're they're just they don't have a, that immediate ability to um take it off essentially or even find it um so I, I wonder like how do you think about from from a from a like technology policy for putting your hat on in terms <laughs> of like your your regulatory hat like how do you think how do you think about like the it arch, architecture of the internet and how to Um, deal with these, like, immediate streaming or publication of violence and and how you address it?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's um, the dreaded question for someone like (laughs) me, I guess. Uh, I'm very rarely uh, giving advice in any form to to anyone, really. Um, But I think if we take the Buffalo uh, case as an example... Of course, the event was live streamed at Twitch and then it spread at Twitch uh, and at Facebook afterwards. And it's it was spread at Facebook for like 10 hours or something, wow. I think, before it was taken down. And that is awful. I mean, as soon as the footage is out and you realize what it is, It should be taken down, of course. And I I am not a technologist in the sense that I would know how to identify the server that is uh, spreading this content or, or the user that is recording it. So, I mean, the technical solution is not really what is interesting for me, but I think that what is interesting to discuss is the responsibility of the tech company in terms of moderating their content. And when it comes to live streaming, violence. I think what is important to keep in mind is that when it comes to crime prevention or prevention of violence in general, we do have a similar kind of problem in the sense that we cannot anticipate spontaneous acts of violence. So if there are spontaneous acts of violence, like effective violence happening, that is hard to anticipate beforehand. And therefore, also hard to counteract but for the police. But there are usually signs of uh, violence being in the kind of range of possibility prior to the actual act of violence happening. And I think it was with Buffalo as well, like there had been manifestos published beforehand yeah. and um, quite concrete, um, at least, threats of violence broadcast across these channels so I think the what the tech companies should do is find good ways of monitoring that kind of content that does kind of forbear or uh, entail a promise of violence in the future or that seems to predict violence uh, before it happens and I'm very aware very aware of the fact that we do not necessarily want tech companies to be responsible for this. So whether it is regulators or um, tech companies that have this um, responsibility, I'm sure that you would have a more more informed opinion about how this should be done or who should be the responsible party for it. But I think in terms of the temporal issue, Mm -hmm. there is um, a before and an after violence Uh, in the sense that the violence, um, in terms of the live stream, for example, is just the kind of epitome, usually, I think, of a lot of preparation. Mm -hmm. And then there's this aftermath of it being spread. And it is in the kind of temporal spaces before and after that regulation can do something, Mm -hmm. because at at the event the only thing that really matters is to stop the violence where in the space where it's happening. Yeah, I mean that's that's the most important to stop the violence where it is happening, and then to try to stop the spread afterwards. So mm-hmm. to, to frame it in a very linear sense, I mean I'm not I'm th- trying to think about time in a broader perspective in the sense that I I try to kind of question this linear presupposition that we assume that time is composed of a past and a present and a future, but in the sense of regulation I do think that this distinction is quite useful because it does designate where we can intervene and that is predictive and retrospectively.